Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. Hello and welcome to Surviving the Survivor. I am clearly not Joel. I am his wife, also known as Ileana, but most of you guys know me as the COE, and that stands for the Chief of Everything. So I just wanted to say hi and welcome all of you guys to this midday live, at least for us here on the East Coast. It is 12.30 Eastern time. I know you guys are from all over the world, so thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. I'm just gonna give you a little bit of background on me, just because the last time I did a show, someone was like, who is this person? It's not Joel. I, she was confused about who the host was. So. This is Joel's channel. It is Surviving the Survivor. I usually work behind the scenes, but I am doing once a week a show where I'm bringing on these phenomenal women. Today, we have Lawyer Lee. And my background is I worked in TV news. I was a news anchor, a reporter, and a network news correspondent for 15 years. I am now Joel's wife. I'm a mommy to three kids, and then I work on a lot of STS stuff behind the scenes. So I just wanted to give you guys an update on who I am. I also wanted to thank the fabulous lawyer Lee for being here. I know many of you already know her, and I want to give you a quick bio and then let her introduce herself as well. While she doesn't look it, Lee has more than 31 years of trial experience under her belt. She graduated first in her class at Vanderbilt University, then cum laude from Harvard Law School. So she's a little smart. <laughs> Lee Wallace has also been named one of the top 100 lawyers in Georgia and a Georgia super lawyer every year since the poll began. And she was named one of Georgia's legal elite. And that is no surprise because if you've seen any of her shows, or if, been, if you've been watching any of the Michelle Traconis trial coverage she's been doing, you know that she knows her stuff, she understands the law, and she can break it down for all of us, which is exactly why we wanted her here today. So welcome, Lee. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I'm excited to be on your show. Excited you have a new show. Thank That's you. Awesome. Thank you. And I did want to address one quick thing before we start. You used to be Harvard Lawyer Lee. I know that you announced it. I was just telling you that I think you're a total badass for your video, and I absolutely loved every minute of it. But uh, really quickly, just why, why the name change for those that don't know? So I got a cease and desist letter from Harvard saying that they felt people would be confused by my name of Harvard Lawyer Lee, that I guess people would think I was the law school rather than a lawyer who went to Harvard and whose name is Lee. And I honestly, I, and I say this in the video, I mean, my initial reaction is kind of the lawyer reaction. Oh, fight this. How dare you? You know, but uh, that's ridiculous. No one would think that. But, you know, I had learned from the man I clerked for, who was a judge on the 11th Circuit. And he used to say, now, remember, just because the other side wants it doesn't mean you don't want it. And I, I've tried throughout my career to apply that because it goes against what lawyers naturally do. And so I applied that and I was like, you know, frankly, I don't want Harvard on the name. I mean, I, I think there are reasons not to have that. And so I was like, you know, actually, I want that too. I think we can agree. And so I changed the name. And if you guys have not gone to Lawyer Lee's YouTube page, you definitely need to check it out. She covers a lot of different cases. She also has been covering the Michelle Traconis trial and been doing daily breakdowns, but she also has a great explainer on the whole Harvard Lawyer Lee name change, and it's definitely worth a listen. So if I were you guys, I would go and watch it. 
I enjoyed it. And I thought Lawyer Lee was a total baddie after that. I already knew you were before, but when I watched that, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, so thank you for sharing that with all of us. Well, thank you. Yeah. And then one quick thing before we start. I want to say thank you to everyone. Um, a lot of you guys already know it was my birthday yesterday. And I just wanted to take, I'm sorry, my school calls every time I'm live. Um, I just wanted to take the time to thank each and every one of you guys who reached out to me. I also want to give a few quick shout outs. My mom made me this hat. Oh, nice. That's awesome. <laughs> it says the COE. My eight-year-old made me some bling. Nice. Nice. My nine-year-old made me some STS Nation bracelets. <laughs> I don't know if you can even see it. I love the way they're into your job and your career. I love that. What? It's, well, funny. <laughs> it's funny because like Joel jokes about it being a brand. Um, but really, really like, like, love to be a part of it. Like, my, my mom got me this hat. Everyone, like my friends here in Miami, uh, they're not necessarily into true crime, but they'll watch here and there. And so they call me the COE and it sort of started off as a joke, but now it's like a real thing. And I, I mean, I respond when Joel's like, yo, COE, I'm like, yes. Um, so it's funny. It really has become more, more of a, a whole family thing. And obviously Carm, uh, my mother-in-law. So I just wanted to thank everyone and one more person or two more people that I'm giving a quick shout out to. And then I promise Lee that we'll get started. I'm showing these earrings. These are little rubies. They're absolutely gorgeous. I want to thank Canine Catherine, who sent me a birthday package in the mail that arrived before my birthday. And the most beautiful, thoughtful, handwritten note. And I just want to say, I was completely taken aback by that. And Lee, I know that you obviously have a huge following. You speak to so many people, but it's an interesting thing, I think, on YouTube. Some of these viewers, you know, members, whatever they want to call themselves, really become like friends and family. And I feel like we really get to know people in a way that, at least in TV news, we didn't before. There was a huge buffer. And here it's become so intimate and so personal. And I really was taken aback by by Catherine, who sent this beautiful, it was like a very personal curated package. And it wasn't about the fact that she spent the time and the money. It was the thoughtfulness and it was her birthday. So instead of going out and focusing on herself during her birthday, she sent me a package. And I, I mean, I'm gonna tear up now, but I was really brought to tears just because some people are so kind and take so much time and energy out of their own life to do something for someone else that they don't even really know. And I just thought that was really beautiful. So I wanted to say thank you to Canine Catherine. And then one quick shout out to Zoe B. Happy, happy birthday. All right, we are going to finally get into it. So if you're just joining us, apologies, I went on a rant there. We have Lawyer Lee, who is absolutely the best perfect, person to be on this story to break down this trial for us. Now, I do want to give you guys some background on the story. And Lee, please feel free to jump in. I know that you're the expert here. So if there's anything else you want to add, but I just want to start off by remembering Jennifer Farber Dulos. She's the person who is the victim of this case. And if you haven't been following this, Jennifer Farber Dulos was a mother of five who was going through a custody battle, was going through a divorce 
with her estranged husband, Fotis Dulos, and on May 24th, 2019, she disappeared. She dropped her kids off at school, she went back home, and no one ever saw her again. Fast forward to now. We've been watching the Michelle Traconis trial, and Michelle Traconis is the girlfriend of Jennifer's estranged ex-husband, Fotis Dulos. So I don't know if you guys can piece that all together. Um, but I just wanted to take a minute to really look at this image. I love this photo of Jennifer. I feel like you can really get a sense of who she was. She was so beautiful inside and out. That's what a lot of people say. And this is an image here of her five kids who are now much older, but who have had to live their lives without their mom and now without their father as well. And they obviously have been affected by so much of this. They're old enough to know what's going on. And so I, I did just want to take a minute to think about the family. Very appropriate. And, and Lee, you've been following this case from day one, at least the trial. I don't know if you followed it beforehand. Let's start off by talking a little bit about why. Why this case? So one of the things I liked about it, um, as far as covering it for my channel, was that I could actually watch the trial. And to me, I can do a lot better coverage for people. I can talk more in depth and explain more if I can see the trial, as opposed to see people's breakdowns or thoughts about the trial. I liked it too, because it's um, it's a hard case. It's not one of the easy cases where somebody is caught on video with 5,000 witnesses, you know, shooting people in a large arena. It's This is something that's much more subtle. The investigation is really important. And there are a lot, there are differing opinions. And I think that's where, in the end, that's where the justice system really works. And I think that's what true crime really is about, is about finding justice. And in this particular trial, um, I just want to start off from the beginning, just because I know in Connecticut, things are done a little differently. And at least for me, it threw me off by not having opening statements. If you have not watched this trial, they just sort of started and got right into it. They skipped the whole opening statement part of what we usually see in a trial. Is that, obviously in Connecticut, this is standard, but for jurors, do you think that's something that's gonna affect them as they're making a decision in this case? Because I feel at least as a viewer, I was just sort of thrown into it. And that's that I already had information about this case ahead of time. That's how I felt too. And I was really surprised. I had no idea that there was such a thing as not having opening statement. I mean, I've been practicing all this time. I didn't even know. So I'm Googling Connecticut opening statement. I'm like, what? You don't have, I had no idea. So that was something that was new to me. I do think it's made a difference in a really complex case like this, where it's not just that the first person gets on and tells the whole story. You know, obviously I witnessed and saw this, that, and the other. This is really complicated. This is weaving together video and DNA and who went where and what truck. And I think it would have been really helpful in this case for the jury to have had an overview. And so it sort of forced, as far as coverage, me to go back to the basics. I did a couple of videos in the beginning to give people an outline of where we were going. That arrest warrant affidavit that had been filed at the beginning became a critical piece of information because it, it was the closest we got to putting it all together. But I think it has made it more difficult to follow. I think you see that in the comments. People are frustrated with trying to figure out how everything pieces together. 
And Lee, I'm so sorry. You probably are hearing it. I have two dogs. One of my dogs is going crazy. I'm just going to open the door just because everyone in, in the comments is being driven crazy. And now you guys know what I deal with all day long. So let me bring Ethel in. While I'm doing that, uh, Lee, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and give me one minute. Uh, okay. Um, so originally from Alabama and that's where I grew up and went to and a long way away to Harvard for law school, which was a really great and very different experience. I clerked for a year on the 11th circuit doing appellate work and a lot of criminal work, but all kinds of different cases, the gamut. And then after that, <laughs> I see her in the background chasing after the dogs. And so after that initial uh, year clerking, then I went to work for a big law firm and then went from there to work for several different smaller firms and then have had my own practice for many years now as well. So that's sort of about me. <laughs> I started YouTube about a year and a half ago, I guess, and sort of got more serious about it during Depp v. Heard. And I saw people asking questions that I knew I could answer and I knew they, they didn't understand a lot of the basics, but they really wanted to. I thought, oh, well, I could explain that. <laughs> I, I see that you want to know that, and I could tell you that answer. So I sort of started the YouTube more in earnest with that case. Well, and in, in this specific case, so we have a couple of different concerns, or at least I do. And again, you're, you're the expert, so please let me know if there's something that you feel differently as an attorney. But as just, you know, a layperson, the mom at home watching this trial, I feel like we're being taken in so many twists and turns and things are just being thrown at us. And I was saying even earlier today in our chat as we're watching along and watching this trial is that I feel like when you're sitting at home, it's so easy to convict people. But when you really take the time to put yourself in the position of the juror, there is so much responsibility and there is so much heaviness. And in this case, I feel like if I was a juror, I don't know how I would feel about the case in terms of the actual evidence and what's been presented. Because I know those of us at home have been reading and watching and, you know, watching your breakdowns and getting more insight. But when you're just in the trial and you're sitting there as a juror, do you think there has been enough evidence presented? And do you think it's been presented thoroughly enough and eloquently enough so that the jurors have enough evidence to make the decision that they're going to have to make? So, Ileana, I think that's really a great viewpoint you have, which is that, you know, the issue for us at home, it is really easy to jump in on the, oh, obviously, you know, she's guilty. And usually people jump in on the guilt side. And but if you're a juror, the difference is a huge. I mean, you're making a decision about whether a human being sitting right there in front of you, not 40 feet from you, whether they are going to spend the rest of their life in prison, or at least potentially many years in prison anyway. You're making that choice, that decision. And so obviously you want to follow to the T the, the law and what you're told. And you want to make sure that she's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And so I think for them, it's a very difficult challenge. As far as my personal view, I've tried really hard for the purpose of being as neutral as I could be on the coverage, not to say anything until we reach the end of the trial. Okay. 
And so I've tried not to do that. I, I hope I haven't had a leaning. I, I usually know I'm doing a good job with that when people write and say, oh, well, you you clearly think she's guilty. And someone else writes and says, oh, you clearly think she's innocent. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I'm doing a good job then because I really can't tell. But, you know, I do think it's a hard case. I don't think many people seem to think, oh, this is really easy. This is really clear. I don't think that's how it is at all. I think you can even see the detectives wrestling with that in the interviews with her. You can see them trying to figure it out. Okay, is she lying? Is she just kind of ditzy? What is what's happening here? And I think they struggled as well. And when we're talking about this trial, you know, we obviously have to hone in on the evidence and what has been presented in in court. What what do you think of the surveillance videos and of the interrogations? We've been watching those over and over. Let's start with Michelle Traconis. She was interviewed three different times by police. Right now, we're seeing it again this morning in the coverage. And there have been a lot of inconsistencies. And the, the talk that we're having on our STS chat as we're watching is, is are all of her inconsistencies enough to show that she knew what was going on and that she had some involvement? And I guess my question for you as the attorney is, as you're watching all of this and as you're listening to these interviews and then watching the evidence being presented, What's your take? Do you think this evidence is strong enough? And do you think jurors need more than just inconsistencies? Like how, how much do they need to, to really have reasonable doubt? So the statistics show that the chances of a guilty verdict are overwhelming. Uh, there was one re uh, Pew Research study that said 99%. I, mean, I don't think it's that, that high. I think that was an isolated yes, study. It's really, really high. So the chances that that's enough are very high as far as what the actual result will be. Now, in terms of the truth and what is the truth, I wrestle with it because I have had people, I represented people who were witnesses, and I've seen them... It, you know, I'm going to tell them, don't guess. Do not guess. If you don't know the time, don't say a time. If you don't know the location or the distance, don't say the location or the distance. Stick to what you know. And she talks, you know, in a broader sense. And I think it's created some inconsistencies, often in areas that are very small and that may not matter. I think it also was accentuated by the fact that the, the, um, investigators had initially, and they say this, they're very open about it, that initially they had some information that wasn't correct. So I think that threw things off too. So that's why I think that interrogation is critically important, but also really unclear. I think the other evidence has to be there to shore it up in this case, in my opinion. And when we're watching those interrogations, you know, there are obviously inconsistencies in what she said, but there's also what seems to be, you know, her feeling of, of feeling very defensive. Obviously, you know, she's been interrogated three times. There's a lot on the line. So I, I understand that feeling. But when you're watching as a juror, when you're watching this trial unfold and this is being presented as evidence, do you think those emotions and those actions play a role in how the case plays out? So I clearly, I mean, clearly they do. And, but I think you could see them 
in either of two ways. You could see them as um, she's defensive and she's defensive because she has something to hide. Or you can see it as she's defensive because she feels attacked. They keep pressing her for more, more. Give us more information. Tell us where the body is. I mean, they don't go that as far as to say, where is the body? But they more or less say that. And they, they say, tell us more. Surely you know more. Give us some information that would basically commit photos. And the other argument is maybe she doesn't have it. And you heard them have that exact debate. I thought it was unbelievably fascinating when we got that six minute segment in the middle of the second interview where Michelle and her lawyer leave and you have just the detectives sitting around the table and talking out, well, what do you think? And one of them says, you know, well, what if she's just doesn't, what if she really was on her phone and she didn't notice him throwing this stuff out. And talking about evidence, what do you think have been two, three, four, five of the key pieces that if you were involved in this case, you would be honing in on? So the, the fireplace was huge for me and the smoke coming out and the timing of that with her back and forth. I think the fact too that she had what they said today was four, but I counted as five trips to 80 Mountain Spring and she talked about three. Uh, I think about the throwing trash around in Hartford and for people who are a little bit new to the case, which I think most of your people are not, but they they were driving around Hartford on the evening that Jennifer disappeared. Fotis was driving, Michelle sitting beside him in the pickup truck, and they get out periodically and grab a bag out of the back. Not they. Let me correct that. Fotis gets out, grabs a bag, and throws it in a random trash can around Hartford. And the, the question is, why throw it out there? Why not just throw it out where you had you have dumpsters, you're doing construction sites. Why would this be something you have to do? And this driving around Hartford, throwing stuff out has become critically important in the case. Why did they do that? And of course, in those bags, they found some DNA of Jennifer Dulos, a little bit of DNA of Michelle, more at the mouth of a bag, and then, and Fotis's DNA as well. So they found things that could connect all this up. So that's become a very important piece of information. And I just put this image up here. It says the evidence, Fotis Dulos versus Michelle Traconis. For those that don't know, uh, Fotis Dulos was the estranged husband of the victim, Jennifer Farber Dulos. He was also the boyfriend of Michelle Traconis who was on trial, but he unalived himself. So he is no longer on trial, clearly, but it appears that you know, as we're watching this trial unfold, and we've been watching it now for, I think, five weeks, I mean, it really feels like FOTUS is the one on trial. And so, you know, I, I made this just so, Joel, just so you know, we're live. I made this um, here just so that for those of you that are not familiar with the case, you can visualize. Sometimes it's just easier for me to, to see a face and, you know, take it in and, and absorb more of the details. But I, I, something that I find interesting as I'm watching is that I feel like we're watching a trial about Fotis Dulos, not Michelle Traconis as much. I feel like she's just the sidekick in this. And while I realize that the charges she's facing coincide with that, I do feel like a lot of what's being presented is proving that Fotis Dulos was there and that he had involvement. But sometimes we're not really getting that smoking gun that some of us need to really feel like there's more clarity in this case. What are your thoughts on that? 
really important issue. And I think in closing, her lawyer has to bring that home. Her lawyer has to say, okay, you got this. Where's Michelle? You got that? Where's Michelle? And so the prosecution has done a good job, I think, of trying to connect the dots, but there aren't many. That's why the fireplace and the smoke is so important, even though there's no evidence of what was being burned. And I wonder why not? By the third interview, we did hear them ask about that. So they knew. So did they look at the fireplace? We've heard nothing about their attempt to find DNA, ashes, anything in that fireplace. It would give them an idea of what was being burned. And for those of you guys that are unfamiliar with the fireplace, uh, what we're referring to is smoke coming out of the chimney. The day um, during the interrogation and one of the inconsistencies is that Michelle Traconis was being asked about her timeline, what she was doing, and they asked her to walk them through everything that she did. She never mentioned that she put the fireplace on. And yet in videos that the state presented, we see the fireplace on because we see the smoke coming out of the chimney. This is key because everyone is pointing to the fact that this is a huge inconsistency and people are discussing, and, and even the detectives discussed it, the fact that that day, I believe it was in the upper 60s or lower 70s, it was it was a fairly warm day. Michelle Traconis was wearing, I believe, shorts or short sleeves, or she was dressed appropriately, but people are questioning whether or not it would make sense for someone to, one, not mention that they put the fireplace on, and two, put the fireplace on to begin with during that weather in Connecticut. And it wasn't, it's timed with when she was there and when she left. So it's intermittent. You know, she gets back to the house for even just 45 minutes there's or less and there's a fire. Then it goes out and she goes back and then she comes back and there's more burning. So a clear suggestion by the prosecution is she's getting materials taking them back to the house and burning them there in the fireplace to destroy evidence. There really isn't much proof of that. I, we finally just now, right before we came on, saw her be asked about the fireplace and the smoke. And she seemed rather, you know, un, she didn't really seem concerned, unconcerned about what they were asking her. She's like, oh, yeah, I have, fire, I have fires. She didn't even seem to understand sort of the implications of what they were asking her. She didn't have a lot of information. But I think that that might have been an issue. She, she really didn't seem to have any reason to hide that in her mind. And uh, another thing that has been addressed throughout the trial is Michelle Traconis and the fact that she sometimes needs a translator to translate from English to Spanish. And sometimes she's able to understand and communicate perfectly. Um, obviously, in the interrogations that we saw, that was all done in English. Detectives were asking her questions and she was responding. She did have an attorney there with her, but she did not have a translator. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And I know that at the beginning of the trial, she also started off listening to headphones with a translator. And I, I think the last couple of days, I haven't even seen a translator there unless I totally missed that. Um, I don't know whether there's been one there the last couple of days. Maybe they didn't do it because she had a transcript or something of the interview. So maybe for that reason they didn't. I can't say one way or the other. But as as far as the the 
person who's been doing the interpreting and whether she needed that. This was kind of my way of thinking through it. I thought, okay, let's say I spoke another language decently well, which I do not, <laughs> but if I did, and I was I was charged with conspiring to murder someone facing you know, a huge amount of time in prison, I would want an interpreter. If I had any uncertainty, if there were legal terms I thought I might not get, I'd want somebody there who could kind of help me through that to make sure I didn't miss anything just because of the stakes that are involved for her. So that would be how I would feel. So I didn't blame her for that at all. I also felt like during the interrogation, she struggled and it wasn't so much that she couldn't understand what was being asked. She struggled to get the exact words right. So I did think it was to the extent she was being held to a really high standard, like this particular, you use this phrase. I thought that was a little unfair. There was one time when she, there was something she said, I'm trying to remember what exactly the phrase was, but it, in English, it sort of has a connotation of hiding something. And I, I don't think she really meant that. I think she, it just was a way it came out. So for that reason, I wasn't, I was not appalled. I didn't think anything bad about her for having the interpreter, but I will say it's been a repeated comment on my videos is people saying, you know, why does she have an interpreter? She seems to speak English pretty well. She certainly does communicate well. I mean, she can carry on a conversation. She knows what's happening. So to the extent she signed a waiver of her rights, I mean, she knew what she was doing with that. There's no question on those issues. Well, and it's interesting. So I, I am a Spanish speaker. I, I speak better in English. Uh, English was my first language, but some of my siblings, Spanish was their first language. And while I understand and I can read and I can write and I can fully communicate in Spanish, I will say if anything ever happened, I would also want a translator, but I would want a translator in those interrogation rooms. I feel like that's when I would want the translator right. so that I'm not caught off guard, so that I'm not confused, so that while they're asking me questions and I'm completely frazzled just by the emotions of anything, whether I'm guilty or not guilty or any, I mean, just being there, I assume, is is probably so stressful in, 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 in it of itself that I, I would definitely want not only an attorney, but a translator. So I just find that part interesting. Um is that during that time, she didn't ask for a translator. Yeah, that is a surprise. I don't know if no one thought of it, if her attorney didn't suggest it, if she was just so used to communicating with people, it didn't occur to her that the stakes would be phenomenally higher than a conversation at the grocery store or anywhere else. And I have a comment here that I'm starring, which by the way, Space Coast, if you're here, can you star questions or comments? I'm a complete amateur, as I already warned Lee, um, and I'm very slow to this. And if you guys have questions, please start to ask them. But Patriotiac, um, or yeah, Patriot, yeah, Patriotiac, um, she's a regular, or I assume she's a she, but I have no idea. She is a regular, and she's been watching this trial every single day. And she says, no translator, because she had her computer taken away. Remember the contempt hearing that was scheduled last week? No more laptop for Traconis. So I, 
I don't know if the, if the translator was translating via the computer or was present in the courtroom. I remember that initially it was very annoying because you heard this murmur the whole time in the background and they seemed to deal with that. I don't, but I don't know where the interpreter sits. I don't know exactly where they are or if it's coming just like Patriotic Act suggests over the computer. That would explain it. But boy, that's a heavy penalty. Lose your computer and lose your translator are different things. I would, I hope they didn't do both. And and talk to us about this whole drama with the laptop um, and the sealed documents. For for those that aren't watching, explain to us what happened and why this is so important. Or or if you don't think it is important. I, I think it's it's not directly important to the case, but it is directly important to Michelle Traconis because there's going to be a contempt hearing. So we know that that's coming. It'll happen. The judge said at the earliest after the close of the defense evidence. So there, it will be in a little silo of its own at that point in time or later. The judge said it might be even later. That would be the earliest he would handle it. So what happened was there was a really important document that Michelle's team has mentioned over and over and and they tried to get it in and the judges said no. They've been talking about it for quite some time. Michelle says that Fotis Dulos, her boyfriend, had no reason to kill his wife, Jennifer Dulos. He had been bitter. They had had a lot of problems with custody disputes with the over their five kids. But he, everything was about to turn around because a report had come out. And that report for the first time said Jennifer Dulos had we heard from Michelle as what Fotis told her had psychiatric issues and Fotis thought he was about to get full custody. This was the game changer. It was finally all going to work out. So the defense argument is, okay, why would he kill Jennifer now? Maybe he would have killed her three months before, but now that this report is out, but they can't get the report in. The report is sealed. It's confidential. It's part of a proceeding that's not connected to this one. It was a divorce proceeding and a custody proceeding between Fotis and Jennifer. So it's not connected up. And so they've been trying to figure out how can we get this in? Because it's important to the motive. And they, there's reference to it, but the report isn't in. So Michelle had up on her screen, according to people in the audience, and it could not really be seen by the camera, although there are people who have blown it up and clarified it. And you can kind of see the document. And it was really big letters. And it appeared to be a page people believed in the audience anyway from that report. So uh, as if she was trying to communicate to people in the audience what couldn't be communicated in the trial. She wanted people to know what was being said in this report because she thinks it was helpful for her. So that was what the prosecution was upset about. This is a, a private sealed document and you shouldn't be showing, even if you had a copy, which you, she probably was not supposed to have a copy, it shouldn't be something that you blow up on your computer to display to people to try to do an end run around the ruling that you aren't allowed to have it come in. So, and that's what the dispute was about. Prosecution said, we have people in the audience, a person who says this happened. Then they brought in some evidence and the court said, look, I'm not going to deal with this in the middle of your criminal trial. I'm going to deal with this later, but it will be a contempt hearing. And in, in reference to that, Beth here says, do you think the police needed to confiscate the computer to see if, that she, to see if she did have the psych report or the sealed documents in this case? 
Um, I don't, I haven't seen any reference to them, and hi, Beth. Um, I don't, I haven't seen any reference to them confiscating it. What I heard was the defense, as I remember it anyway, stood up and said, she doesn't have her computer today. And that's because I don't, it was the female uh, lawyer for her said, I, we, you know, we don't have, we have to listen to the evidence. We don't have time to monitor what's on, you know, the client's computer. So she just didn't bring it which suggested to me she elected not to bring it, not that the police confiscated and took it. Uh, I don't know if they had a warrant or anything like that that would give them the opportunity to take that psych report. I'm, I'm thinking not, but, but anyway, it's a good observation, Beth. And I have a question for you, Lawyer Lee. A lot of people have been making a lot of comments about the defense attorney. And Joe Marr, who has also been watching this case very closely, says, Lawyer Lee, what do you think about her attorney? He seems very annoying to the judge. For those of you who have not been watching, this defense attorney does make a lot of objections and motions. And I, I'm by no means an attorney, and that's why we have Lawyer Lee here. But it, it, he does seem like he's interrupting the flow of the trial more often than any other trial many of us have seen is is that normal is do you think do you think it's appropriate in this case i i don't know what what's your take as an attorney who has been there covering trials yourself so i saw at least at one point that he asked the judge to give him what attorneys call a standing objection and that's where there's a whole category of evidence that's going to come in and everybody agrees in advance okay we know you don't agree with any of these questions, but it's gonna take us 20 minutes to put all this in or longer than that. So you can just have an, you make your objection at the beginning and then it'll last all the way through and we'll all agree to that. If there's not an, an agreement like that, then what happens is there has to be an objection to preserve the issue for appeal. So if it comes in once and you object and stop it, twice and you object and stop it, the third time and you forget to object, fourth time you forget to object, suddenly you have an issue that you thought would be an issue you could bring up on appeal that now you can't because you didn't perfect your objections on that. So that's a, a chronic problem. It shows they definitely are thinking ahead about appeal. And the judge told them you can't have a standing objection. At the same time, it's something lawyers really worry about. They worry about, am I objecting too much? It is what I'm saying going to, am I, I got to protect the appeal. I have to do that. But at the same time, am I just annoying the jury because I'm objecting so much? And usually I think it's, lawyers don't know. They don't know when they cross that line. I think in this case, we can tell that he's crossed the line. And the reason is, we have what essentially amounts to a shadow jury. I don't think lawyers in these prominent cases have any idea what they have access to. A shadow jury is a jury that hears the case, not the real jury, but you bring them together and you talk about the day's events each day with them so you can get an idea what the other jury, the real jury, might be thinking. And that's what we have. And I agree, the comments have been overwhelming. People are really upset. Too many objections, it's going too far. So there's a clear answer on that. Yes, he's gone too far. And the, how do we know? Because the the shadow jury that is the comments tells us that. Well, and, and just as someone that's watching, and, and I'll admit, I haven't watched that many trials. I've only ever watched maybe three trials in its entirety. One was in person. And 
I mean, I, I feel like I can remember maybe like a few dozen objections and it was a long, long trial that I was watching. And I mean, this guy, they almost joke in the chat where like, if he's not objecting every five minutes, they're like, well, is he still there? Did he step out? Is everything okay? But that's exhausting for the jurors. Yeah. And I, I think we're going to, I think that it clearly, given how many comments there are about it, I think it 100% is something that the actual jury is going to be thinking about as well. I think it, it has crossed the line and lawyers don't know when it's crossed the line, which is why I think, I, I really do believe lawyers have, don't understand what they have access to. On a show like this or a show like my show, those comments are raw gold. They should yeah. absolutely be reading those during a trial. And going back to uh, Michelle Traconis's other attorney in the interrogation that we were uh, that we've seen the three different interrogations, Sherry Davis has a question for you. Do you think her lawyer represented, protected her during the interrogation? In my opinion, he seemed very quiet. Yeah. Hi, Sherry. And I, I do think um, he was very quiet. I think it's because it was sort of a different setting. The setting wasn't a courtroom with a judge to rule on the objection. The idea that I think they thought was going to happen was by coming forward and being cooperative, not objecting, not refusing to answer anything, they would maybe buy her the chance to not be prosecuted. Maybe they could convince the the law enforcement personnel that she wasn't involved, that she really wanted to help and she shouldn't be charged. And that they really wanted that. So I think his goal was not to intervene, but to let her answer everything. But I can imagine that was a hard discussion in advance. And there were, you know, that interrogation is fascinating because there are many, many ways she hurt herself. <laughs> and then there are many ways in which she got a chance to air how, who she is and her belief that she is innocent. So it'll be really interesting to see how the jury weighs that. And um, I can't remember who it was or which panel. I know that a few weeks ago, when things were just getting started in this trial, Joel did a panel on this case. And one of the attorneys or one of the law enforcement agents said that they knew that attorney that was in the interrogation room and that he's very well respected and very well known in Connecticut. So I remember they brought up this very issue of whether or not the attorney should have, or, you know, you know, should have said more or whether or not he was familiar with the law and how things work and, and whomever it was, I can't remember if it was an attorney or a law enforcement agent said that he is a very well-known and well-respected attorney who is very familiar with, with the law. So I found that tidbit interesting as well. Um, there was a question here from Ms. T. If the jury believes Michelle has been answering with many lies, is the jury greater to find her guilty with all charges, regardless of the lack of evidence? I think they'll actually be able to consider that itself as evidence. I mean, that would be circumstantial evidence. If she's lied about a lot of little things, they can consider that because they're allowed to consider her truthfulness, her, her veracity, whether they find her credible. They can think about that. And so I think if they find she's been answering with many lies, that in, increases 
their ability to believe what law enforcement has brought and decreases their ability to believe her. So I think that it definitely can have an impact. If they think she's answering with lies, Ms. T, I think it will be significant. Well, and that sort of goes back to what we were discussing before, this whole notion of whether or not there is enough evidence. I was I was saying um, to you, lawyerly, and, and also to our chat, that if I was a juror, I feel like I would be conflicted because I, I'm almost overwhelmed and confused by the hard evidence of what's actually been presented combined with all of the inconsistencies. And some people in the, in the chat were, were echoing what you just said, that those inconsistencies almost become like the evidence. And that is a good segue to this question from Annie Kay. Lee, do you foresee lesser charges being considered before deliberations or is the prosecution, prosecution confident? And aside from this, can you also describe maybe some of the charges and what is required of the jurors to actually vote for those charges because we're not talking about homicide. Um, so there are three different sort of boxes that they put the charges into. And the first box is conspiring to murder. And to answer Annie's question, I don't think the prosecution is gonna move off that. I think they put up a good case. I think they've worked on this for years. I think they believe that she's guilty and I think they'll stick to it. So Annie Kay, I think that's the answer to that. There are two other boxes. One is tampering with evidence. And that could be burning evidence. That could be to, um, if, you know, bringing things back and forth from AD Mountain Spring and burning it in the fireplace. It could be dumping things around Hartford. Anything like that could be tampering with, evidence, with evidence. And then the third box would be hindering prosecution. And the idea behind that is the they're working toward figuring this out and she lies to them or tells them something that prevents them, stops them from being able to prosecute. And I think into that box would go things like when she, if, if people believe that she lied in order to protect photos and things like that. And speaking of some of those moments, um, you know, obviously the big surveillance video is the one of Fotis in his truck and what appears to be Michelle Traconis with him. Mm -hmm. And he's dumping trash and bags. We see an arm come out. It appears to be her. Again, you know, we're, we're unsure of 100% of, of who's who. But as we're watching that, and then we see that other surveillance video of both Fotis and Michelle Traconis at Starbucks, and there was very nervous energy they seem to be you know physically uncomfortable as you're watching all of that there's not hard evidence that necessarily says hey michelle knew what they were doing if that was her um you know and she was aware of the details but do you think all of all of her body language and and just like her placement is enough to to be presented as evidence that can prove that she had some kind of, you know, awareness of what was actually happening as opposed to her just, you know, riding, riding along and getting a coffee with Fotis? So the jury can certainly consider any of that it, for itself. Nobody, apparently anyway, from what we've seen so far, there's not going to be an expert who's going to come in and say, you know, this is, you know, where she was. There's not going to be any testimony about it. This would just be the jury thinking to themselves, hey, 
this is how I perceived it. You know, I saw him walk around the car and she kind of closed the door, but it was still open. So maybe she was involved or knew or had some information about it. So I think those, and I'm referring to him dropping the envelope in the sewer. There's been a lot of discussion about that in particular. He comes around the side of the car and he's holding the white envelope with the altered license plates in it, which has had no importance in the case that we know about. It's very, I mean, surely that's such a sketchy, weird fact. Surely it had some relation, but we've it hasn't been connected. But anyway, he throws them in the sewer. All weird, sketchy facts that you would think have something to do with it. And she kind of closes her door as he comes up, but it's still open. And so a lot of questions, did she know he was throwing it in? What did she think about that? Some people suggested she threw it in. I, it looked to me like he leaned down, plus he was holding the envelope. So I personally didn't see that, but it'll be up to the jury to think through that and I imagine they will have that video in the back. If I were a juror, I'd want to play that through a few times. It was a real important one. And I, I have a, this question here um, for you. How long is the trial set to last? 24 days already. It seems pretty long. I know that the state is supposed to be wrapping up today. Walk us through what we should expect over the next couple of days. And is 24 days a long time? Is this pretty standard for a case like this? It's a pretty long case. Uh, I think they set aside a total of six weeks for the trial. And they've had a couple of holidays and a snow day in the middle. So there have been a few days when they haven't met. But at what to expect next, the prosecution will rest its case. The defense will come up next. And... I would not expect them to be all that long. They mentioned at least one expert, so I know they're going to do something. It's not going to be a, you know, no, no further witnesses, immediate rest. There's going to be some case that they present. And then there may be some rebuttal from the prosecution. The state may come back and have a few more witnesses that respond to what the defense did. And I think all of that will probably wrap up within the next two weeks. So I think it'll be, I don't think it's going to be a lot longer now. I think it's going to move faster. And what about um, the car wash scene? I know that they were talking about that for quite some time. And for those of you that are unfamiliar, Fotis Dulos was driving a Tacoma pickup truck that belonged to his employee and he went to go wash, and by wash, I mean fully detail. I think he spent like $250 detailing the truck. And when he went to take the truck for the detailing, he filled out the information, except he didn't put his name. All he put was Michelle Traconis's phone number. And this is being presented as evidence. And there was, um, there was a witness on the stand explaining the whole process. Do you think evidence like that is strong enough? I mean, I know it's a lot of little different bits and pieces that really put the picture together of what happened, but do you think pieces like that will be key in this trial? So the thing about the, each of these facts individually is you can argue them both ways, which is what I think makes this case so fascinating. This is why this is a really interesting case. So on the one hand, you could say, look, she's driving around Hartford. She has a little bit of DNA. They're throwing out bags of bloody clothing, things from the scene of the crime. She knows it's there. She doesn't care. Casually goes into, into Starbucks. And you could argue, you know, then she, she gets this detailed. She's with him every step of the way, drives him everything. Or you could say that 
Look, here's what she did. She rode with her boyfriend to Starbucks while on her phone. And he did some stuff and she paid no attention to him because she was on her phone. And she then helped him take a, take a car to a car wash. Like, where is the evil in this? Where is the evidence in that? And that's where I think the two lawyers have a, on either side have such a huge responsibility because it's all those little facts that either add up to enough or that seen a different way don't add up to enough. I don't know. I don't think I actually answered your question. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, you did. And and I think that's the whole point is that there isn't an answer so far. And I think at least for me, as I'm watching, I think that's why I'm frustrated um, because usually when I'm watching, I feel strongly about, you know, about the trial one way or another. And here, while I've been watching the coverage and watching your coverage and reading articles, and I've been speaking to my friends who used to be news anchors and reporters in Connecticut who covered it and who also are neighbors uh, because they all live in that area. In speaking to everyone, I feel like I have a very different opinion as opposed to when I'm just watching what's being presented. And I think that for me is the issue, and I don't know about the rest of STS Nation, is that I, I am a little torn about, about how much is actually hard evidence from my perspective and things that I would vote for if I was a juror. I'm trying to, since I'm, you know, I'm watching this in, in its entirety, I'm trying to really think about it, not from my perspective at home where I'm unaffected, but as a juror, and I feel like they have a really hard job and not that any juror doesn't. I mean, it's a huge responsibility. I used to be um, an associate producer. It was a paid internship um, at Dateline. And I remember saying, I wanna be a juror. And one of the producers were like, no, you don't. (laughs) They're like, "It, it is a huge responsibility. And now that I'm watching, I just keep thinking to myself, what would I do? And I don't, I don't know if I know. And I think that for me is interesting. And I, and I don't know if you're leaning one way or the other and you don't have to share it because I know you said you wanted to hold off. But I think that's what's interesting in this case is it, I don't want to easily convict just because I'm at home and I'm half paying attention. I want to really think about it from the perspective of, of a juror. And I find that in this trial, it's not as easy as I thought it would be. And I think that's so important. I think that really matters because I really do believe that the reason that people are interested in these cases is because they want to see, as I said earlier, justice. They want to see the person who did this evil thing convicted. So if this is not the person who did this evil thing, it would not be justice to convict them. And I think that's where our system has such a responsibility. And that's what makes these cases really interesting. And earlier in our chat, someone said that, I can't remember who it was, so apologies for not giving you a shout out, but someone mentioned the fact that she thinks we feel differently about defendants who are men versus women. Do you think that has any impact on, I guess, generally on on defendants, but also in this case, the fact that, you know, it's not the case, it's not the trial of Fotostulos, it's the trial of Michelle Draconis. She is a mother, she does have kids, we are seeing her as the girlfriend of the man who is allegedly in charge of this. Yes, she is being charged with conspiracy and all these other things, but you know, she's sort of the, the sidekick and the accomplice in, in this case. Do you think that being a woman, we're, 
we're projecting or we're looking at her in a different light versus if, if it was a man on the stand or, or, or being tried? So that's a really interesting and I think kind of deep question. I don't know that there's one single answer to that. I think that it is easier. Um, I, I, I see people really interested in these cases with female defendants. So I think the interest level is higher. And I think part of that is it contrasts conflicts with what we expect. You know, we expect certain things of moms and of women and suddenly here's this person who murdered somebody. That seems so out of keeping. And I think people are fascinated by that. But I think at the same time, they they may more easily conclude that the person um, is involved. So I don't know. I think we, I, I do think it matters. I think it's definitely important to the case and to any case, but I don't know if it's going to help her. And uh, Gen X Granny, who's one of our amazing mods, we have a lot of fabulous mods. In fact, I'm going to give them a quick shout out. Hold on. Big thanks to Space Coast, but also to our mods. I'm not T-Pain, Gen X Granny, Copper Horse, Frankie Figs, and Shaquille Oatmeal. But this comment here is from, oh, what did I do with that? Is from Gen X Granny. Oh, and of course I lost it. What am I doing here? Lee, I warned you that I'm an amateur. I think Gen X Granny wanted to know, how do you think the bicycle factor in Lotus is planned? Yeah, and you know, I was going to mention that I was watching Thank you so much, Space Ghost. He just put it up for me. I was going to mention that I was also watching the Connecticut News. Um, I watched two different channels, and they both were zeroing in on this. And one of them had a legal analyst on who was a defense attorney, and he was going on and on about how he couldn't, he didn't think this was key evidence because he couldn't really tell who was on the bicycle. And so I just wanted to get your take on whether or not you think this is important evidence and whether or not you think there was anything that jurors can take from this. It's pretty vague. They really, I mean, really all they have is a matter of a few seconds of a dark figure on a bicycle zipping past some addresses in New Canaan, Connecticut. And that's that's it. And they have the fact that Fotis owned a bicycle. He owned several, but they zeroed in on one that he had owned from his childhood that was a French bike. And they found on in the garbage, at least what they believe was the garbage he threw away. They found a piece of tape and on the back of it was a piece of paper stuck to it that said Tour de France. So they figured, okay, this must have gone to the bicycle. That could be his bike. We know the pickup truck, the red Toyota Tacoma was parked in a certain spot and it was a distance into Jennifer's house. So he must have taken the bike. Then they add that with the fact that there was a circular item in the back of the pickup truck in one of the one of the cams that they got um, video surveillance going back and forth. So it is sort of that. It's not. It's very very vague. There's uh, there is no evidence that. I mean, how many people ride a bike every day in New Canaan, Connecticut, right? And they just have a dark figure on a bike, and that's all you have. So it's it's not super strong. I think it was important because they had to get him from over there by Waveney Park, where the red truck was, to Jennifer's house. Because if he's at the park and he never gets to Jennifer's, then how did he murder her? So they use, and the bike is the evidence that they have, but I think it is not real strong. And this question here is from Sharnay Sa, or SA. 
Sorry, my eyesight is not the best right now. Uh, Lawyer Lee, thank you for sharing your insights and expertise. How many defense witnesses are you expecting other than Michelle? Seems she will have to testify. So um, I guess how many defense witnesses are you expecting? And do you think Michelle will testify? Um, so that is a great question, but I don't know the answer. I'm waiting with everybody else to find out what the, how many witnesses there will be. I don't think it's going to be long. I think they even mentioned, I think they said something about wrapping up by the end of the week. So that says to me more than one, but not a lot. As far as whether Michelle will testify, always risky to go out on a limb, but I last night went out on a limb and said, I don't think she will. This is my theory of it. She basically testified in those interrogations and either you believe her or you do not believe her. I don't think she has more to say that would, that would support what she believes about her case. So that was my thought was she's, she's already out there to the extent she can protect herself. She's already tried it and it's been played at trial. But, you know, it's always risky to make that to make that guess. And Elf is asking if you think Kent will be a witness. And I just want to give a quick shout out to Elf and also to Julie Frew, who have been watching this trial and are uh, STS Nation members. I know they also watch a lot of other shows as well, but I just wanted to give a shout out to them and to Jessica M72 since they watch every single day and know all the details about this entire trial. I hope so. I hope Kent will be a witness because I'd really like to know a lot more about what exactly his involvement was. I feel like if the case against Michelle was vague at the, before trial started, it's even vaguer against Kent. It's really not clear. We have heard all trial that, you know, he's probably coming, he's probably coming, he's going to testify, but thus far, no. So is that the state's big final witness? Could be. Well, I am on pins and needles waiting with everybody to find out. And this person is saying, consistent Insomniac 49 is saying, do you think she will be found guilty because, because they can't charge him? Do you think the jurors will find the guilty charge on the fact alone, even if they are instructed not to consider it? I assume they mean they can't charge Fotis since he's obviously dead. Um, how, does, how does that whole situation, I guess, play into this? You know, obviously, Fotis is not on trial. He's dead. He can't be held responsible for anything now because he's not around. So now it sort of falls on, on Michelle, different charges than what Fotis would have been facing. But does that play a role or, I, or, or should it not play a role for the jurors? But do you think it's something that, that they consider anyway? Well, I, I think uh, consistent insomniac has a really good question, a good point, because there is additional pressure. No one has been convicted of this horrific crime. There was a terrible crime, or at least it's believed that Jennifer Dulos disappeared, dropped her kids off at school, gone forever. That just doesn't happen. And people don't believe that she just ran away. They believe she was murdered. So who did it? Somebody needs to be held responsible. And Fotis Dulos is not the person who's going to be held responsible for, you know, because he's no longer around to be held responsible. So now the question is, will all of that need to find somebody guilty fall on Michelle Traconis unfairly? Like, will people just think, you know, we 
somebody needs to be held accountable for this. And she's the only person standing. We think she's involved. She's the one. That's a definite risk. But I, I think the jurors will probably follow what the judge tells them. I think they will try very hard to focus on whether Michelle Traconis was actually involved and limit it to that and not ask you know, was Fotis involved? Is it really Fotis's crime? But, you know, hey, she's here and he's not. I, I think they'll really try hard to put her as, to, to focus on what connects her to the crime. And now that the state is finishing up today, I think, um, and, and we're moving on to the defense, what do you think needs to be done in the next few days as the trial wraps and then it goes to the jurors? What do you think needs to be done for the jurors to have a better understanding and to make their decision either way, whether it's guilty or not guilty? Well, I'm a big believer in exhibit and trying to put things together for the jury. I try to do that on my YouTube channel so that if people are watching, let's, you know, let's look at an exhibit. Let's see how this fits together. Let's look at it. And I hope that there will be a lot of that. I think both sides need to bring exhibits and things that put it all together. I think that they tried on Friday and and did some of that. I think they've been doing it with this witness who's presently on the stand showing the third interrogation. They did sort of some putting things together, showing the rides back and forth from 80 Mountain Spring, from the home where Michelle and Fotis lived to the work site. They, they did some of that. And I think it was really helpful. I hope they'll do a lot more of that so that the jury, because the jury is going to want to make the right decision and they need support and help to do that. And in this specific case, there is no body, which I, I can't even imagine if that makes it better or worse or more complicated, or I can't even think of that because I'm just thinking of the family and to not have any solid evidence like that um, just must be so heartbreaking for them. But when we're talking about it from a trial aspect, how difficult is that? Because usually you know, we have the medical examiner giving us their kind of breakdown of what they think happened. And in this trial, we're missing a key part of, of what usually happens in most murder trials because there is no body. We don't know for sure what happened. We can't see the results of, you know, whatever X, Y, and Z happened after she disappeared. How does that play a role into this trial? And Michelle has said several times that at least initially, she believed that Jennifer was still alive and had run off, that Jennifer had done that before one time in her life, according to Fotis, that Fotis said she had gone somewhere for three or four years, changed her name, lived somewhere, all because she was angry with her parents. She said that in the interview we just heard today. And so that is, without a body, there are possibilities like that. Is that likely? I would say very, very, very unlikely because of the fact that she had the five kids. I mean, here she is diligently caring for them. They have dental appointments that afternoon or orthodontist appointments. And so it just doesn't seem like someone who just runs off and leaves or abandons her children. But without a body, there are always complications because you don't have the proof, even of the murder, much less of how the murder happened and of who did it. So definitely a, a more complicated case, but people are convicted even without a body. That's not, it's not unknown or unheard of. And I just want to share this here. This is from Marlon, who is one of Lawyer Lee's mods. 
He says, Lawyer Lee goes live daily at 7 p.m. Eastern time during the Michelle Traconis case on trial, normally Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 7 p.m. Eastern time. So I do want to remind all of you guys that Lawyer Lee, while she's a fabulous guest here, has her own channel and has been doing a phenomenal breakdown. She really goes into a lot of details. And if you haven't watched any of her shows, you're definitely missing out. You can start five weeks ago and watch, watch five weeks of her coverage. So I do want to share that. Also, Web Fan, who has been watching this trial with us, says, on the road watching this, Lawyer Lee is awesome. And Courtney H. has a question for you. Does Lee still practice law? I do. I still practice law. I still have some active cases. Fewer, but I still have some active cases. And... I know that for this specific trial, we didn't have the opening statements. Are we expecting anything to play out differently in terms of the closing arguments in this trial, or will that be standard? I hope they're long. Not because I like long arguments or you know like to hear lawyers talk for a long time, because I think there is a lot of work to be done to communicate this case to the jury. And I think it's going to take that in order to package it for the jury. Like you've heard all this evidence and they didn't have the, like I could sit there as I was gonna explain it to people, I could rewatch things, I could tape things, have little snippets that I rewatched or showed to people. They didn't get any of that opportunity. It's shown once and then moves past. So I think it is really important that this be wrapped up and packaged so they have a chance of reaching what I think they're gonna wanna reach, the right decision. And speaking of that decision, let's go to canine Catherine here, who is asking, what is the burden beyond a reasonable doubt? Explain what that means for a conspiracy charge, because it's different, I, I think, than what would what we would be considering if it were a murder charge. So how is it different and what is the burden? So um, and canine Catherine's right that they're going to be looking at whether or not the state has made its case beyond a reasonable doubt. But you're right, too, that it has to be applied to what is the charge, not that she personally murdered Jennifer Dulos, not that she personally did whatever it was that ended her life, but that she conspired to do that. And so the jury will be focusing on what's the evidence that links Michelle to working with FOTUS toward committing the murder of Jennifer Dulos. And they're going to be evaluating that based on do we think the state has made its case? And also with those other two areas that I talked about, tampering with evidence and hindering prosecution, they're going to be looking at each case. Do we believe Michelle hindered the prosecution? Do we believe beyond a reasonable doubt we can take a look and say, yeah, she did that? And so for each count, they're going to have to ask that same question over and over. And they have a lot of evidence to go over. I just want to pull this up from Annie Kay. She says, watch Lawyer Lee's charts and maps. So much clearer. Lawyer Lee also goes over all the evidence. And I believe there were almost 150 exhibits. And yes. And there were, there were some exhibits that had many, many, many parts to them, you know? So it wasn't just 150 things. It was, you know, exhibit eight dash, whatever. So there were a lot of exhibits and, there, were, there was also a lot of testimony that I think could be confusing. The defense complained bitterly about it, where they would go through the chronology of all the things they looked at, most of which turned, and it would take several witnesses to do it. So they would 
name, you know, 90 sub objects with blood like stains. And you go, wow, it looks like there was just blood everywhere. There was blood on the door, blood here, blood there. And then it gets pulled down. They only test three of them for actual blood. And then they do DNA testing. A lot of that stuff falls out. Only a few things actually had DNA, actually had blood that tested positive, not just for the presumptive test, but the real test. So all of those things, when you, I, I think that's where the jury is going to have an especially hard time. And that's where the prosecution and the defense have a real burden in showing the jury what the facts are. Well, and I remember when they were presenting all of the evidence with blood on it, like the, um, like the plastic poncho and the bra and the blouse, like those were very disturbing images. And when you visually see that, I mean, it, it's hard to really grasp that those items belong to someone. And I was expecting at that point to have a smoking gun kind of moment where we were going to see this hard evidence come out and we were all just going to be shocked by it. And instead, I felt like a lot of the evidence was inconclusive or just not as clear as, as we may have expected. And I do think that, again, going back to the perspective of a juror, it's, it's very overwhelming. I mean, I, I, can Connecticut jurors take notes? I think I so. Know. I think okay. they have taken notes, but I guess I'm not actually sure about that. Yeah, I know. I know different states have different uh, rules, but I, I just keep going back to the fact that it, it is a very overwhelming and confusing case with a lot of with a lot of details. And thank goodness we have you lawyerly because you've been keeping us all sane through it as we're trying to weave through all the evidence and really understand it. And so we really do appreciate you. I haven't been able to pull them all up, but like every other comment is pretty much saying how amazing you are and how grateful we all are for you and for your insight on this case. So I just wanted to thank you. And um, someone said, yes, power hour with CEO, COE, same thing, and lawyerly. Um, so I just wanted to thank you so much for being here and for taking the time. I don't know if you have like a final takeaway or, or any advice for us, those of us who are watching at home and, and watching this. What should we look out for as, as we're watching this trial wrap? I think this third interview is really, really critical. It's the place where I think the prosecution is going to hang its hat on the hindering prosecution charge particularly, and on some of the involvement. And so with the conspiring to murder, so I think it's really critical. I was listening to it. It's really hard to understand. I'm going to have to run it through my AI. Then I'm going to have to listen to it over and over to try to understand it because the audio is just terrible. But I think things have been moving at a much faster pace and it's been a lot more sort of exciting as we're, we're putting it all together. And I think that's what we're going to have. I think we're going to have a fast paced few days. I don't think it's going to ever go back to that sort of slogging through all the, you know, all the little pieces of evidence, all the numbers, what tests did you do? I, I think we're past that and we're on to the real meat of the case now. And what about when this case goes to the jurors? What do you expect? Are we expecting to have to wait you know, several days, because I mean, this, this is a lot for them to really take in. Right. You know, honestly, and I think this might be just be a complete lawyer bias. I like it when the jury takes some time because I feel like they're really considering it. You know, they're thinking about it when they come back and just bam, like, Oh, think, Oh, well, I guess to them, it seemed really clear 
But I just like to think they really sat down and worried about it and thought, we want to make the right decision. Let's do it together. And I hope that's the way it'll be, regardless of how long it takes them. I, I would think as long as this trial is, that they would take some time. But I was shocked at Alec Murdoch when they came back in three hours. So it can definitely be quick. Charlie Adelson, another example. Well, and it's funny, people earlier in our chat were talking about this case and in a weird convoluted way, uh, comparing it to the Murdoch case, saying that there were lots of bits and pieces and inconsistencies, and they think the jurors are going to have to piece it all together and use the inconsistencies as evidence in the same way they did in the Murdoch trial. So I found that comment by that person interesting. So sorry, I can't give you a shout out because I can't remember who said that. But I, I do think it's it's fascinating to watch these cases and see how they unfold. I think sadly, um, you know, for many of us, we're just watching and I think it's easy to just sit at home and watch, but there are some people, and I just want to pull this up again, who are very, very much affected by everything going on. So I do just want to take a moment again to remember Jennifer Farber Dulos, to remember her family who is still grieving years later. They still don't have answers. They still don't have a body. And it doesn't matter how long it takes, these kids will never have a mom. And as a mom, I can't even really begin to focus on that thought because that'll just completely break me. But these five kids have no mom, they have no dad, and they now have their nanny and their grandmother, thank goodness, who are taking care of them. But so many people are affected by all of these cases that we cover. I know for some people it's entertainment to watch these stories unfold, and it's obviously very fascinating, especially when you have people like Lawyer Lee who have the insight to break these cases down. But it, it's very real and it's very personal for a lot of people. So I just wanted to thank you, Lawyer Lee, for coming on here and thank for sharing you. the last hour, hour and a half with us. Well, thank you. I appreciate your having me. All right, then. I think we're done with the show. I just have to remember how to pull up the outro here, which I'm so bad at. All right. Thanks, everyone. Please hit the like button. We appreciate you guys. Happy birthday to Zoe B, Canine Catherine. Thank you so much for your kindness. And thank you to everyone for being here, for supporting STS, for supporting Lawyer Lee, and also, thank you to all of you for all of your birthday wishes. All right. Final seconds of the game, a chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. 
Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.